Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author. And I'm also happy to say that he's my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Super good and extremely psyched to uh, talk with my friend and teacher, James Barrows. Yeah, we've been really looking forward to this one. So, James, how are you doing today? Feels great to be here with both of you. Yeah, and we're so happy to have you here. It's kind of overdue to do this with you. You've been a longtime friend of my dad's and a friend of mine as well. And I'd like to start just by giving kind of a quick introduction for James. He's been teaching meditation since 1978. He's also a co-founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Woodacre, California. He's the co-author as well of the wonderful book, Awakening Joy, 10 Steps to Happiness, which also has a version aimed at children, if you happen to be a parent. And he leads the popular online course by the same name. He's the guiding teacher for One Earth Sangha, a website devoted to expressing a Buddhist response to climate change, which I know, James, is something that is profoundly important to you and central to your work recently, which we'll be talking about during this episode as well. Yeah, James, I'm just... Very psyched to have you here. And I'll start here. You're known for exploring joy and including in a Buddhist space. Now, generally, when we think about mindfulness, which is a major topic for you and where you're a major teacher, if we think about mindfulness in general and Buddhism in particular, uh, joy is probably not one of the first words that comes to mind. But your focus on positive emotions has been really important for lots of people, me included, and you've really kind of developed it. So I wonder, why is it that A, joy is important, and B, what got you interested in that particular topic? Well, first, great to be hanging out with with you, my dear friend, Rick, and with you, Forrest. So good to be, uh, be doing this together. Yeah, joy is... It's not the first thing, as you, as you mentioned, that you think of with Buddhist teachings, but actually the Buddha talked a lot about different states of well-being. There's all kinds of words. There's piti for rapture and bliss, and there's pamodra for gladness, and sukha for happiness, and there's words for contentment and, and peace, and a whole range of states of well-being. But often in Buddhism, what you hear, the first teachings you hear, the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering in life. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a path leading to the end to suffering. And so people, when they hear that teaching, sometimes they're often so relieved to hear, oh, somebody is saying it like like it is. But it, it can be a little bit daunting and not realize that the Buddha the Buddha was called the happy one. You know, why is that? He he wasn't called just the person who who looked at suffering. He was called the happy one. And he said, go for the highest happiness and you'll experience all those other happinesses along the way. But it can get lost in the shuffle. The Dalai Lama, I love his book, The Art of Happiness, starts out with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. Because if we can get in touch with our own happiness and well-being, then all of our beautiful qualities shine through. And so to go for that and put that in the center 
I feel and have seen is very important, particularly to Buddhist practitioners, but to whether or not you've ever heard any of Buddhist teachings, it's important to remember that life isn't just about getting through and overcoming suffering, but it's about mm. celebrating all the blessings and beauty in our life. And for, for many people, it takes a bit of practice to put well-being at the center, particularly their own well-being, mm. and opening up to the the joy that they were born with. We came into this world with joy. You see a, a baby who's fed and diapered and and uh, given a little bit of love. What do they do? They squeal with delight. And mm. that's our true nature, but it's often obscured or covered over. So it seems like I'm just highlighting a very essential and central point of the Buddhist teachings that can easily get lost. As far as the second part of the question, what got me into it? Very simply, I lost my joy. Mm. I was a complete gung-ho Buddhist practitioner for a number of years when I first got into the practice. Oh, it was my salvation. And then after about 10 years, at some point, I got very serious about my practice, as as often can happen, mm. as I sometimes say, dead serious, with the emphasis mm. on the dead. And I, I lost my vitality and my joy and went through a period for some time where I there was some kind of dissonance with the teachings and what I felt to be was a natural part of life and who I, who I am. And at some point, I said, okay, what the Buddha couldn't have just taught about getting through suffering. What did he say about joy besides being on the meditation cushion, which is easily spoken about on retreats, and how could it be applied? So I went back and I looked at the teachings, and there are beautiful, profound teachings on accessing well-being, not just in formal meditation, but in our life. And I decided to not only explore them for myself, but share them with others, because I, I knew I wasn't alone in that. And it's proven to be true. I think that that's a great setup, James, for what I sort of wanted to talk with you about today, which is that there are a lot of different ways that somebody can lose that connection with joy, joyfulness, happiness, positive emotions, kind of whatever language you want to use for it, which can vary a little bit based on your tradition. You describe one of them where you were kind of spiraling into such a, a, to put words in your mouth a little bit here, like such a serious relationship with the material, so much formality really like getting into it in that way where you lost touch with the joyful aspects of it. Right. Maybe another way that people can kind of relate to that is when they go through difficult times in their life, it can be very challenging to find joy inside of it. And I think that we might've had a pretty different conversation if we had been having this conversation like two or three years ago, earlier on in the podcast. But between a pandemic, big picture challenges like the climate crisis, all sorts of stuff that's going on these days, there's a lot of extra difficult heaped on top of the normal difficult that people might be experiencing in the course of just a normal human life. So in difficult times, uh, joy or positive emotions in general can get a lot less accessible to people. And you talked for a second there about kind of reclaiming your joy or refinding your joy. And I'm just sort of wondering how you did that. Yeah, these are intense, crazy times. We're on the 
on the brink of something, whether it's over the cliff or hopefully a a new awakening of the species. If we, we play our suffering right, that's what the Buddha said. You know, if you, suffering is usually what wakes us up out of our complacency. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. I do hold possibilities along with the clear understanding that we're, we're going through and we'll go through a whole lot more suffering. When I got into the climate crisis, it was, it hit me like a ton of bricks. When I really mm-hmm. opened, I kind of knew yeah. we we're in trouble. But when I read Bill McKibben's book, Earth, spelled with two A's, because it's, he said, we're no longer going to have the same kind of Earth, it really hit me hard. And I had to go through one of about, oh, two or three different grieving processes over the last dozen years or so. And just saying, oh, wow, I have to do something, but what can I do? And it seems so despairing and helpless. And I ran into, um, I met with a friend who was the, the head of the World Wildlife Fund Climate Program, who also is a very experienced meditator. And I said, Lou, I have to do something. I don't know what I, what I can do. All I've been doing is teaching Buddhist meditation and awakening joy. And I kind of said it with a dismissive attitude, just remembering that moment. And he, he looked at me and he said, James, joy might be the most important thing we need to remember. And I said, okay, I can do that. And then it became clear that When we get despairing and helpless and hopeless, we just want to cave in and throw in the towel and say, oh, what's the point and what can I do? And we lose our aliveness, our connection, our love with life, of life. When we can remember how much we love life, how grateful we are for the miracles all around us, then it gives us energy to act, but not out of gloom and doom, but out of love and gratitude and grace and joy. Then it's a world worth saving. So that's how I I kind of put together and seeing, oh, this is more important than ever. That's beautiful, James. And, And I can absolutely, with every atom and every molecule and every cell in my body affirm what you're saying as true and actually grounded in a lot of hardcore neuropsychological research on what helps people be resilient and to cope with difficulty and and including to recover from trauma and also extend themselves pro-socially, cooperatively, lovingly, altruistically, compassionately with other people. You know, personal well-being, including you know, a a fairly upbeat or hopeful, joyful quality of well-being, of happiness, are are major factors in all of these things. So it's absolutely true. So here's really kind of a central question. I know you've reflected on it really deeply. How can we practice in ourselves in a way that awakens joy broadly, while also including and not turning away from and not turning a blind eye to the objective problems in the world and the suffering, including non-human species suffering, uh, that comes with it. 
Yeah, that that is the question. Yep. And that's our task. That's our koan. Um, in Buddhist cosmology, it's said that there are different realms of existence. And it's said that the human realm, it's a bit anthropocentric, but that's, <laughs> uh, that's the teachings. The human realm is the optimal realm to wake up, to awaken, to truly awaken, because it has this balance between sorrow and joy. Mm. The, the deva realms, they're lolling about for eons saying, wow, this is pretty cool <laughs> and no problem here, but they don't have a chance to develop compassion to see the, the truth that this universe, this physical plane, includes birth and death and pain and sorrow as well as joy we get an opportunity to learn how to relate to the full experience, not only of being human, but of being alive. So to your question, if you're only living in joy, you're in denial. Oh, right. isn't life wonderful? And you got a locked jaw smile on your face. Spiritual bypass. Yeah, spirit, you're, you're just sleepwalking. Oh yes, life is wonderful. But if you're only living in sorrow, you're lost in despair. It's important in Buddhist philosophy that you need to come to terms with the sorrow and grieve fully and metabolize the truth of the suffering and the pain and the sorrow all around us, but not be overwhelmed by it, and not to miss all the beauty and the goodness. Forrest had mentioned that I, I teach a course, Awakening Joy, and there are 10 different steps. And Rick, you've been, uh, you've been a guest a number of times on this course, and uh, people have always loved you. And there are 10 different mind states or qualities of heart that cultivate well-being. The fourth step is how can we open up to the difficulties and the pain in our life and use that as a path to joy. And interestingly enough, as is often the case, the Buddha spoke very directly about this. He said that if held right, suffering can be a causative factor for faith to arise, and faith can lead to gladness, and gladness can lead to joy and happiness and concentration all the way up to full enlightenment. But it starts, this particular list, of which there are many, starts with suffering can lead to faith. And you think, how is that possible? And I always ask people when I share this in a, in a room or a, on Zoom, how many people here were motivated by sorrow or suffering in their life to look for deeper answers about the meaning of life and continue on their, their journey? And most every hand. My hand's going up. Yeah, your hand. I didn't even have to ask you. And I said, look around. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. That our heart cracks open, but we don't want to get stuck there. We want to feel our losses fully, grieve fully, but metabolize it so that we're able to see all the beauty in life. And so... A truly happy person is not happy all the time. They 
feel their losses and they're not lost, but they don't miss all the good in their life. Because the word faith has a lot of meanings. Mm -hmm. What is the meaning of the word faith in this context? The word in Pali is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, which can be translated as faith or trust or confidence or conviction. Not that everything is going to work out. No, that, that's not what this faith is about. But And I, I love the word trust in the sense of trusting in the awareness that meets the moment, that when you have developed your inherent capacities enough and you've gone through all of the difficulties that you've gone through, you look back and you say, oh, made it through that one, made it through that one, made it through that one. Oh, maybe I'll make it through this one. And I've learned all of those lessons along the way. So this is not a mistake. How can I use this to deepen, if it's suffering, deepen my compassion and my courage and my inner strength? And getting through it, I realize, oh, I can trust that the awareness will be able to meet that moment when it comes in the future. So talking about just the cultivational aspects of that, because you know, I think that many people have had the experience, particularly if you're the kind of person who listens to a podcast like this, knowing a little bit about our audience, where you've had that moment where you have been, quote unquote, cracked open by something, where you've opened to the suffering of the world, you've opened to the suffering of a friend. Hey, maybe you've opened to the truth of your own suffering or past suffering that you had in your life maybe having to do with certain painful events that happened in childhood, whatever the truth is for you. Okay, so we've had that moment. And then in my experience, where a lot of people struggle is with the putting back together part. That the, the cracked open for a lot of people is very available to them, but the putting the pieces back together and reconnecting with that underlying sense of joy or happiness or, or faith, as you were saying, however you want to translate that word, can be a real struggle. So Absolutely. what are some of the things that you do with people to resource them, to allow them to get back to that point where the puzzle pieces start coming together? Yeah, yeah, really great. And and the, in that teaching, by the way, it says suffering can be a causative factor for faith or trust, mm. but it yeah. can also lead to bitterness, contraction, a lifetime of trauma and anger and fear. So it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. If you're fortunate enough to have support, it generally takes realizing you can't do this alone. When we're here together with others, we can help our pain be held and move through it, whether if somebody's been traumatized or has, has deep trauma, to do trauma work, to, to metabolize their pain so it's they're not stuck there but to see it in a process of leading to greater and greater understanding as you learn to integrate your own pain and sorrow you will be a real source of healing for others rd lang a great psychologist uh, wrote who was in and out of mental institutions he wrote those who've made the journey to the deepest hell realms, deepest, darkest places of humanity are the best healers. If they've come out, come out the other end. Mm. So that's one thing, realizing I need others to help me through. 
and to somehow work through your, your pain and your sorrow. At some point, you need to come to the decision, to the intention. It's the first step in, in my program, and the Buddha says is the start of all change. When you get clear, I want to face in the direction of greater well-being, and I make the decision to go for it. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going for it. Then life will support you, but it ha- it can't come from outside. It has to be this inner deciding, I'm going to do something of value with my life. I'm going to find out everything that I've been given, gifted with, and I have the intention not only to succeed later on and when I retire, I'll be happy, but to place well-being in the center of my life. Everything starts and changes from that decision. And then you see where happiness really lies, which is waking up to the truth of life, mindfulness, the mindful life, so you're not living in denial. And the third, in my before we get to the difficulties, is gratitude, which is a, a, a direct way to open the heart when instead of seeing what's wrong, when you start seeing really how much life loves you, if you will let it, then you, as one, one Tibetan teacher once said, when you have gratitude and when you say thank you, it's like putting out your satellite dish. Then you can receive all the blessings of life and you start to get filled and want to, and have the capacity, have the greater context and container to work with all of your pain and sorrow. But if you're just stuck in complaining, oh, this is wrong and that's wrong, and oh, that happened to me, and oh, woe is me, there's no room for the blessings to come in. And so to Gratitude is a huge help, and then there are other supports. Then there's integrating your pain, then there's living a life of integrity, then there's learning to see how, as you're trying to control life or hold on, it's just a setup for suffering. And then there's learning to love yourself, which is a key piece in the whole deal. Learning to see, oh, there's a Buddha, or there's the kingdom of heaven right inside. And then as you get more in touch with your own beauty and goodness and divine nature, then you can share it with others and, and help awaken that in them and be moved to act compassionately in this world and realize that the peace is here inside all along, just waiting for you to find it. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, 
science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. James, you've walked us through the 10 steps or aspects of awakening joy, and it's such a beautiful, wonderful list. I wonder if you could just restate it with a word or phrase for each one of the 10, just kind of walk us through it one more time. Sure. You caught me on that. I was just kind of going through it in in my mind and the natural progression. And that, that was what I took those teachings when I was so lost. So the 10 states that I share, first, intention, the intention to put well-being in the center of your life, the intention to be for happiness, true happiness. Second, what I call mindfulness, the basic tool for a joyful life, to be very present and wake up to your life. Third is gratitude, the direct opening of the heart to a joyful life. Then the fourth is opening to our difficulties. So we have the big enough container with gratitude and mindfulness and that intention to learn different ways to process our own pain and suffering. Fifth is integrity. It's just living in alignment with your values because there's a price to pay when you are not when you're off and we know it but we often don't listen to what we know Mm. the sixth is 
the joy of letting go, what I call the joy of letting go, realizing that happiness doesn't come from more, the disease of our culture, but it comes from from sharing, from from giving, and from letting go of stuff, which we really need to figure out, especially our Western culture these days, letting know of, go of the consumer mentality that says, oh, this is going to make me happy, letting go of the busyness, letting go of our stories of who we think we are, who we believe ourselves to be, and ultimately the beautiful letting go of generosity and generosity of heart. So that's the sixth. Then the, the seventh is, as I said, learning to love ourselves, which is key for, I'd say, about 98% of the people who come into retreats, you know, at some point have needed to learn to see who they really are. That's the huge turning point because then you're not so concerned about, oh, am I good enough? But realizing, oh, I have something to give. When you really get that, things change. And then the eighth step is then the joy of connecting with others, whether it's loving or forgiving or playing or getting off on the happiness around you, sympathetic joy, and just feeling that connection. Uh, and then the ninth is the, the fuller expression of that giving, which is compassionate action, where we are moved to relieve suffering, not just because we want to be saints, but because it feels good. That's that's what we were born for. And then the 10th is the, the joy of simply being, just without needing to cultivate anything, that to connect with the peace of who you are when you're quiet enough to just let that be accessed. That's who you are, and that's available anytime. That's beautiful, James. And reflecting on knowing you for well over 20 years at this point, I can honestly say that every single one of those 10 threads is woven into the tapestry of your own being. Oh, well, thank you. You really walk it. That touches me. Yeah. Yeah, it's truth. Okay, so we're going to definitely widen this out. But before we do that, I want to ask you, as someone who's practiced really deeply, including three-month retreats, uh, You've gone to Asia, I believe. Uh, you've certainly taught meditation for a long time. You know, I want to ask kind of a narrow, specific question, including for people who have a meditative practice who are listening. As you know, positive emotional states, emotionally positive states, like I'll call it happiness and bliss or joy and rapture, are factors of concentration and thus factors of awakening. And I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about how people can use emotionally positive states of being as as welcome factors in their own contemplative practice, rather than doing what a lot of people I think do is either just ignore them or almost push them away because we're all supposed to be kind of grim and white knuckling our way to enlightenment. Can you talk about this part? That's a great question. And that's one of the key pieces of, of awakening joy you're saying something that's often, I often encounter somebody says, they come into an interview, uh, to a practice discussion, and they say, you know, yesterday, it was amazing. I was taking a walk down the dining room, and all of a sudden, I took a step, and I saw who I really am. I'm, I, I'm actually beautiful, or I saw that I'm not even me. I'm not, and, and then they say, 
Uh, but I know I'm not supposed to hold on to it and I'll let go and I won't get attached. And I say, no, 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 no. Let's go back there. Because if you have been moved in a way, not just conceptually a good idea, but your whole body reverberates with the power of that realization, that's a gift. Unless you say, oh, well, that was then. And I've seen people who say, you know, on my first retreat 15 years ago, this happened and I've never been able to get back there. And I know I'm just attached. And I'll often say, oh, go back to that first retreat right there in the interview. And just just remind me what happened. And we'll start to talk about it. And they say, well, I was sitting out under a tree and all of a sudden it dawned on me whatever their their beautiful experience. And I'm getting a contact high just hearing them, right? Mm. And I say, okay, don't do anything. Just as you're remembering, you just remember. Don't try to go for a gusher. Don't try to make anything happen. Let's just remember together. And it is, I'd say, 90% of the time, it comes alive. I say, oh, what are you feeling? Oh, it feels so good. Ah, that's it. The channel was there all along. They just had kind of dismissed it because they didn't want to get attached. So I find it very important to really let let yourself marinate, as I say. Maybe you were the one that, that told me that, to marinate in that in that moment of of understanding. You start to look out for what's right, and you're priming your brain. Your confirmation bias will start to notice all that's good. And when you do know it, mm. don't miss it. When people say, what, did I, what, what they got from, from Awakening Joy? Three words. Don't miss it. I think that this connects in a really lovely way or to something that I kind of wanted to talk with you about um, during this conversation, James, which is the feeling that you said at the very, very beginning of the conversation, when you said the first time that you really kind of opened to the fullness of what we were dealing with here in terms of the climate crisis, you just felt overwhelmed and like everything else became meaningless and you were sort of awash in the dread, the sorrow, call it what you will, the immobilization around it. And I think that with a lot of the large-scale challenges that we face, climate, pandemic, dramatic economic inequality, racial injustice, pick your challenge of choice. These are collective challenges. And because of that, they can feel very like intractable and overwhelming on an individual basis. Like, what can I possibly do to do anything about all of this? And I know that this is a question that you've really wrestled deeply with. So I just sort of want to set you up for mm-hmm. it, for starters. But then also in general, how do you help people balance that A, an appreciation of the scale of the problem and the critical importance of these issues alongside some sort of movement into what I can do or how I can think about it differently in a way that is positive and not just immobilizing and overwhelming. Yeah. That is the other $64,000 question, as you used to say. Yeah. I wish I had an easy answer, but I'll I'll share with Mm. you my process. That'd be great, yeah. Because it's true. We are looking at 
suffering on a scale that humanity collectively has has not seen before. And I believe, first of all, it's really essential to hold a positive vision of what can happen, that suffering does wake us up, and that in the end, given all the the sorrow and the pain and the uh, and the and the suffering that this is part of our awakening as a species just like in the spiritual journey there's a dark night of the soul that is an essential part of that journey or the hero's journey going through hardship that we are one way to think of it in the dark night of the species mm. which can lead to an awakening and it's true as one of our friends, uh, Roger Walsh, says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. So we need as much consciousness as we can. And wow, we, we've hit the jackpot, our friend Terry Patton says. If, if you want to find a, a life with meaning and you, where you can be part of making a difference in the world, you've hit the jackpot. We can be agents of consciousness, and that consciousness is contagious, just like fear is contagious, and hopelessness and anger are contagious. So is love. So is inspiration. We have an, the elevation response. You see somebody doing something noble, and you get ennobled. We, and so is, is hope. So is vision. And so it's important to hold it in some bigger positive vision. But as far as on a personal basis, first, you do have to metabolize your own angst and fear and despair. There's no way around it. It's too much to say, oh, I, it's up to me to save the world. Forget it. But if you do whatever you do, from love and from wanting to contribute in your own small way to making this a better world, that is contagious. And so if we are each helping each other awaken to the goodness inside, then there is this wave of possibility that happens uh, that margaret mead quote you know don't think that uh, a, f- a few people can make a, a change in the world indeed it's it's the only thing that ever has because the wisdom the conventional wisdom can start to shift look at how it shifted just in the last 15 years you know from being oh you're a granola eating tree hugger who be- who believes in in that climate stuff to oh, it's like the top concern in many people's consciousness. So we can't see while we're in the middle that it's actually going pretty fast, this race between fear and consciousness. Everyone's going to wake up sooner or later. The sooner we wake up, the less suffering. So I want to be part of that sooner, and I want to do it from love. Because if I do it from love, and I do it from caring about this life, non-human as well as human, or this amazing planet that we're on, then that becomes contagious too. 
when we're alone, when we're isolated, we feel just overwhelmed. But when we start talking with others, even talking about our despair and our fear, you start talking about it and you start to feel uplifted. It's like, yeah, every bit counts and you can make a difference. I love what you're teaching here, James. And I think one thing that can happen for people, both in general, but especially as they become more aware of problems in the world and and feel moved to do something about it, it can almost feel either or. Either I open my heart to the suffering of others Mm. or I awaken my own joy. Mm. And we sometimes get very sweetly worded questions coming into the podcast along the lines of, I'm doing okay right now, but I know so many people who aren't. And it's hard for me to find joy for myself sometimes amidst what I know is so much pain in the world. Yeah. How do we, you know, how do we do that? And, you know, maybe to kind of cue you up here, I think of a teaching uh, from someone who taught a retreat I was on. This is a friend of yours, Kamala Masters, who talked about being in India and going down the Ganges early at dawn, I believe in Varanasi, where on the one side, there were funeral pyres burning on the other side. The dawn was first beginning. And she talked about equanimity and compassion together, uh, enabling her and, and people to have a heart that's big enough to include both sides of the river. So I, I just wonder if you could speak more about that, including sometimes a kind of guilt people feel that if they seek their own joy, somehow that's going to take joy away from others or increase the suffering of others. Yeah. Or that it's a kind of either or in terms of where they place their attention. Great. Yep. And and equanimity was the next thing I, I was I was going to get to. Um, so uh, yeah. yeah, you're throwing me a, a hanging curve here. If you feel so guilty about your own well-being that you want to just add to the mix of despair, well, that's not much of a contribution. However, when you're around somebody who is bright and alive and you can feel their love and their goodness and their joy, it brings you up, right? Unless they're flaunting it, that's a whole other thing. But if they're just naturally radiant, then there's something that is resonating with you, that same frequency. That's why it's so great being around the Dalai Lama. Wow, you know, I've gone into hearing talks. I remember one talk, I was kind of in a funky kind of mood and I went into that, that big arena and inside of like five minutes, like hearing him, oh, giggling. Oh yeah, life is pretty good. Um, So you don't want to hold back on your own radiance because that's part of your gift to others. And it's true when you look at all the suffering, there can be, you know, the privileged life that we all share can easily get in the way, oh, do I deserve this? It's, it's too painful even to look at. And as you are pointing out, compassion has to be balanced with equanimity. So equanimity, which in the, in the Buddhist teachings is the fourth of the heart practices of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, then there's equanimity that holds all of them. Because if our heart is breaking, if it breaks open, 
that's good. And breaks open to allow all the goodness coming out. But if it breaks and we feel imploded, this is too much. And so compassion needs to be balanced by equanimity that says, and this is the way things are. And this is accepting the truth without being crushed by it, that life has, has birth and death and sorrow and joy and sunrises and tsunamis. It's inherent in life for there to be continual transformation. Like in, in Indian, uh, in, in Hinduism, along with Brahma, the creator, and Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer, is a god to be honored. Things are always changing, including the stability of this world. And equanimity holds the bigger picture. And when we can bring our own centeredness to our caring, then that's the ongoing practice for me. When I get too close and I'm overwhelmed, I need a little bit of space to hold it. When I get too far away and too spacious, I need to stay a little, get a little closer so my heart can be touched. And it's those balances, the balance between compassion and equanimity. Mm. That's my practice. So James, it's as usual, an induction. That's a term from psychology where we kind of induct people into a mind stream. You're inducting <laughs> me. <laughs> Maybe Forrest is impervious. I doubt it, though. He's a pretty open guy. You're inducting me uh, into your own mind stream, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. I want to ask you a kind of specific bounded question sure. and then a very open question as we sort of move to an end here. The specific question, just I want to give you an opportunity to clarify a bit of what you mean by perfection, because that's a term, whether it's perfection or rightness, that can be kind of misunderstood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could say that very, very much of your life is about addressing uh, the problems, really, of suffering um, and including external environmental factors such as the, the global climate crisis that are, you know, something to deal with. So could you kind of address that and maybe a bit of a way into it, at least for me as a metaphor, when I draw on, you know, the Zen phrase, the great perfection, that's in reference to the totality of allness and even its underlying potentially unconditioned ground. So if we use the metaphor of the ocean, you know, the, the world, the globe girdling oceans are perfect. While meanwhile, some waves are serious problems. So anyway, I wondered if you could just kind of speak to that, including with regard to ourselves. How do we experience the great perfection in our own being while building on Suzuki Roshi? You're perfect as you are, and you could use a little improvement. <laughs> yep. When people ask me, how are you, I uh, these days uh, generally say, well, it, it depends what lens I'm looking at. If it's the personal lens, I'm incredibly blessed. If I open up to the world, my heart breaks. And if I then open up in the bigger picture, I always love the Dalai Lama's saying, World systems come and go, 
And we are just a part of a much bigger picture. We are one little speck in the universe, you know, uh, that we're the only game in town for us. But in the bigger picture, we are life expressing itself temporarily through the human experiment. And this is life expressing itself through Forrest and Rick and James talking together, but it's just life talking to itself. So through these forms. So that that's where I when I look at perfection, for me, there's something right about it all. Uh, and I'm just remembering uh, now a, a line I love from uh, Albert Einstein. He says, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask is, is the universe friendly or not? And I, for one, think the universe is friendly, even with tsunamis and viruses and and hatred and and all of that. There's love, there's peace, there's benevolence, and underneath it all, there's a perfection to it all. So I act and I think, and why not act that way as if the universe is friendly and let me be in as much harmony with it as I can. Well, here's a friendly last question for you. Mm-hmm. Imagining that on your 100th birthday, on your way to 108, oh. 108, and I saw auspicious number. <laughs> so your 100th birthday, which by my estimation is more than 25 years from now, I kind of think at least, right? Just. Okay. Uh, so 25 or so years from now, and you're looking back. You're looking back on your 100th birthday. What is your realistic hope that you will see from the vantage point of the rocker on the porch on your 100th birthday, looking back over the coming 25 years? I see a lot of pain and suffering, and I see a movement towards more awakening. I see a movement towards you know, I truly believe suffering is what wakes us up. And I see more goodness and more looking back, wow, how did we think that way then? You know, wow, it took a lot to wake us up. And, you know, that's where I see as climate, the climate crisis as the big, you know, wake up call. Hopefully it'll be awakening. And I, I see more kindness in the world, in my positive vision. And that's kind of how I see it after a lot of pain and suffering. That's how I hold it, that there'll be a whole lot more consciousness, just like there's more consciousness now than there was 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. 25 years from now, at the rate things are going, who knows? But I know that's where I'm heading. That's that's the vision I want to hold and invite others to hold it with me. Well, may it be so. Yeah, thank you so much for this. And thank you for taking the time today. We really enjoyed talking with you. Mm, fun hanging out with both of you. So today we had a wonderful time talking with our good friend, James Baraz. James is a longtime meditation teacher. He's been teaching meditation for considerably longer than I've been alive. 
and he's also one of the co-founding teachers of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California. We focus today's conversation around the central topic of how we can find joy in difficult times. It feels like there are so many challenges that face us collectively as humans right now. And when you get to challenges on that kind of a scale, any sort of individual action can feel pretty puny and ineffectual by comparison. And it's really easy to move into a place where we just get overwhelmed by the challenges that we face. So during this conversation, we talked about how we can reconnect with an underlying sense of joy and happiness, even in difficult times, and different ways that we can hold those huge challenges in a fashion where it feels like we truly can make a difference on some level about them, even if it's just in terms of how we think about them and how we relate to them individually. Because all groups, even the largest groups, are at the end made up of individuals. And if enough individuals change, well then the group as a whole must change as well. We began by asking James about his sort of personal history with joy. He talked about being a longtime meditator and having a point in his life where he felt like he lost the joy in his practice. And then he described the process that he went through to reconnect with it. That process is explored very thoroughly in his book, Awakening Joy, and his online course by the same name. And I've included links to both in the description of today's podcast if you're interested in learning more about them. There are 10 key skills or steps toward joy that James describes in his book, and he listed them out in order. They are intention, mindfulness, gratitude, the ability to find joy in difficult times, which is what we focused on today, and then integrity. Then sixth, really interestingly, the joy of letting go, which I think is also something that can really support us in times of difficulty or loss. Seventh, loving ourselves. Eighth, connection with others. Ninth, compassion. And then finally, tenth, the joy of being. One of the things that ran under the conversation as we were having it is this idea of joy as a kind of gift. When we don't feel joy because we are overwhelmed by external circumstances, when we don't feel joy because we are suffuse with the pain of other people, Well, that dampens that gift that we have available to give to others, to give to ourselves, to give to the world as a whole. And it's when we let that light shine that we have so much more to give to other people. Another thread that really flowed through the conversation for me is the importance of acceptance. And I know that I might be becoming a bit of a parody of myself on the podcast where like all I talk about is acceptance and agency in different ways. But man, I just think that so much gets back to those two key themes. Because it's kind of a spectrum, right? On the one hand, we can deny the truth of profound suffering out in the world. We can deny climate change. We can deny the impact of COVID. We can deny the impact of so many things. And on the other hand, we can be so overwhelmed with these issues, overwhelmed with this profound suffering that's going on all around us, that it moves us into total incapacitation and even perhaps despair. And as is so often the case, the truth is found in the middle path. We accept the fullness of these challenges, we accept the suffering that is present in ourselves and others in the world, and at the same time, we need to hold on to that degree of equanimity. And in this funny kind of way, it's actually the equanimity 
that allows us to get to true compassion for other people, for the planet as a whole. Because we know in that moment that we can open to that pain, open to that suffering, that discomfort, without becoming completely overwhelmed by it. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you did, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast through whatever platform you happen to listen on, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, it really does help us out. Also, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, we have a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.